wow, we've learned so much in the last 10 years. It's, it's amazing. So who knows what we'll learn in the next 10. Welcome to the Greener Grass podcast from Bluebird Botanicals. I'm your host, Lex Pelger. Today we go deep into the brain science of neurotransmitters, the endocannabinoid system, terpenes, and the effects of cannabinoids on the human body. Our fearless leader for this journey is the research scientist Mike Tagan. He has a broad range of expertise with research in the fields of oncology, immunology, and neuroscience. But today we try to stay focused on cannabis and the brain. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Mike Tagan. This show is brought to you by Bluebird Botanicals to spread education about cannabis and other things on the greener side of life. Bluebird CBD oil comes from farms in southern Colorado and is grown using only water, soil, and sunlight. Go to bluebirdbotanicals.com for more info. Hello, everybody. I'm very happy to be here in the Bluebird Library with Mike Tagan, who is an expert on cannabis and its pharmacology. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Lux. It's great to be here. Um, so before we get into your knowledge of the biochemistry of cannabis and how it works with the body, can you tell us more about being a scientist and when you first realized that science was a direction that interested you? So I, I first knew I was going to be a scientist at, at a very young age, really. Uh, in some, on some level, I think I've almost always known, known it, at least as far back as I, as I can remember. Uh, I think I might have gone through a, a very short phase when I was like maybe six. I wanted to be a fireman. After that, really just everything was related to science. Um, I remember having a book about genetics when I was uh, maybe 11 or 12, and I thought, this is like the coolest thing I've ever seen. And this book, they explained how they, so there's a, there's a protein that can fluoresce. They'd actually made like a transgenic, I don't know, it's like a transgenic fish or something where they put this, this gene in the fish and made the fish glow in the dark. And I'm like 11, and I'm like, whoa, this is like the coolest thing I've ever seen. It's a glow-in-the-dark fish. Uh, so pretty much I've, I've always, always known. And so then where did your studies take you through high school and then undergrad? So I kind of switched fields a little bit, but there was always some common, uh, some common threads. So when I went to undergrad, initially I actually wanted to be a psych major. So I was very interested in, in the brain and behavior. So I went in as a, as a psych major, but actually I kind of realized I wanted to focus more on the brain side or on the more sort of hard biology side. And so I switched from uh, psych to neuroscience. Uh, from there, I even changed uh, changed again. I think I think this has been kind of one constant that I've always been studying different things and switching things around a lot. Like my junior year, I decided no, I don't want to do neuroscience. I actually want to do chemistry, and I tried to double major in chemistry because uh, I loved I loved working in the chemistry lab. I loved organic chemistry, which is something you very rarely hear. This is like the bane of uh, all pre med students' existence, right? It's destroyed a lot of people's dreams. And I'm just like you know it's. When I was little, I really loved uh, like building things. Like I forget what they were called, but it's this children's toy. It's kind of like Legos, but it's more like sticks. And there's uh, these wooden pieces with spokes, and you create these big structures. When I took organic chemistry, I was like, this is just like what I loved to do when I was a, a little kid, building these things with these like blocks and sticks. And except I'm building molecules, so I just thought, oh, this is this is so cool. Uh, switched again, uh, so I. I 
you know, I, I did my chemistry phase and decided, no, I'm going to go back to, to neuroscience. I uh, went into a PhD pharmacology program, uh, fully intending to study neuropharmacology. Uh, got sidetracked again, ended up studying basically immunology for my PhD thesis, uh, but specifically in a lab that looked at interactions between, uh, between the nervous system and inflammation and immune cells. So again, it had a kind of a common theme that still somehow involved nerves or the nervous system, but was basically focused on immunology. So I learned a lot about a totally different field that actually turned out to be pretty, pretty important uh, because all, all the things I studied in the past, even if it was 10, 15 years ago, they, they always come back up again, one way or another. Uh, so then after that, I actually switched fields again and worked at an oncology hospital, a pediatric uh, children's cancer hospital, um, and then worked in, in biotech and pharma for about uh, eight years after that, working in clinical development, doing basically uh, drug trials and mostly in oncology. But again, it came back to inflammation. I studied a couple different anti-inflammatory drugs, pain drugs. Um, so... Everything in one way or another ended up being really linked because now we study, we know that the immune system is super involved in, in cancer. Uh, and a lot of the drugs I worked on were immuno oncology drugs, so stimulating your, your, immune cell, your immune system, your immune cells to attack the cancer cells. So, sort of everything I've done has been very disparate and diverse, but it's sort of all come back together. And now working, bringing this to, I guess, one step further to some of my current research in the, the field of, of cannabinoids. Well, what are cannabinoids often used for? Uh, obviously, brain conditions or psychiatric, psychological conditions, but also inflammation. So I think it's all sort of come back around again eventually, everything I've done. It's fascinating, to, especially the fields of neurology and immunology, because they're so mysterious still in a lot of ways and how, where they intersect is even more uh, mystifying and then as well to be oncology and chemistry which are <laughs> um, what was it what's it like now to have all those tools and then be applying them to the cannabinoids I think it's been super useful actually to have the sort of more diverse background I, I mean there are some people that especially if they're in, in academia, just study one thing their entire life, and it's super focused. And we definitely need people like that doing, the, doing research in those fields. Uh, but since I work now more on the, the clinical side, in terms of I work more on clinical trials uh, than working in a lab, it's, it's actually super helpful because oftentimes, you, for example, maybe I'll be advising one company that wants to do, you know, like I said, an, an, an inflammatory or tested some inflammatory condition, then somebody else might want to study it in anxiety. You never really know what people might want to test it in because it's such a wide, you know, cannabinoids are being tested in such a wide diversity of different conditions. So having that sort of diverse background really helps me work with uh, a lot of different people. And so when did your interest in the cannabinoids develop? Um, believe it or not, Actually, this probably isn't uncommon, but I'd say when I was about 16 or maybe it was 17. Now, I know a lot of people, you know, they obviously get interested in it at that age because, well, they're, they're smoking it. Uh, but I was actually legitimately interested in studying the neuropharmacology of, of cannabinoids when I was like, I would say 17. I mean, seriously, there, there was so few resources back then to... 
uh, for, I don't know, an average, you know, a few websites that were really uh, talking about neuropharmacology back then. I mean, now that we're talking like the, I guess is the, the late 90s, there just weren't that many resources for the average person to learn about it. And so I was doing all the research I I could online trying to learn about, you know, neuropharmacology, neuropsychopharmacology. Um, and so I guess that's just when I first got interested in it. I mean, just I think I was a lot more, I don't know, philosophical as a teenager than I was now. And so I was very interested in like the nature of consciousness and, and okay, if you take this drug, it changes your whole perception um, and your whole interpretation of, of your, your reality. Right. So I was like very curious about these these questions about consciousness and changing consciousness and, and, and changing how you perceive reality. But I, I really wanted to understand like the detailed mechanisms. Right. So the, the neuroscience behind it of of how our perception actually changes. So uh, I had a, a lot on my mind when I was 17. Do you remember when you first heard about the endocannabinoid system and realized that it was present in our in our bodies? Um, I mean, certainly I learned about that in, in undergrad, um, to the best of my, my recollection, that was never a, a huge, huge focus of like the, the basic neuroscience classes. I mean, we have you know, a lot of different systems to learn about. Um, and certainly at least to the best of my recollection, I, you know, we, at that point, now we're getting into the early two thousands, you know, we, there's a, a decent amount known about the endocannabinoid system. Um, and I think it was at least mentioned in textbooks. So it's something I certainly learned about. Um, I wrote several papers about it in grad school for, for classes. Um, and so I, I was somewhat interested in it, but then it somewhat dropped off. Like, like I said, with, with some of these other things, a lot, a lot of them sort of drop off my radars. I work on other projects, but then they, they come back. So for probably a good 10 years, I, I wasn't too involved in reading up on the latest studies or anything like that. Um, I still had the, the interest in the back of my mind, but was just involved in other things. And now here I am, you know, 10 years later, sort of now looking at all the research that, that has happened over the last 10 years since I was really studying it in grad school and being like, wow, we've learned so, so much in the last 10 years. It's, it's amazing. So who knows what we'll learn in the next 10 and so you do a lot of lecturing uh, and writing about these topics. How do you describe the endocannabinoid system to someone who had never heard of it before? So there's a couple different ways that, that I can explain this, but I guess the, the sort of most simple, most basic way would be it, it's a system that helps your body deal with, with change or with stress. Um, I mean, I almost don't want to use the word stress because sometimes stress or stressors on your body uh, can sometimes be a good thing. Uh, so I don't want to think of stress as always bad, but any anything that makes your body uh, sort of adapt. So we can think of this in the sense, uh, in a lot of different senses, because your body uses endocannabinoid system in the brain for well, not one thing, but a lot of different things. Then it's used in your periphery in your body for a whole other set of things. So I. I can say in general what it will do, for example, for inflammation is it's a system, it's kind of like a negative feedback loop where if inflammation starts getting high or if your body somehow has some kind of uh, insult to its, its immune system, something that is activating the immune system, this often also activates the endocannabinoid system, which works as a counteracting force 
to dampen that inflammation. So it's kind of like a, a negative feedback loop, something that brings, so there's some, let's just generically call it a stress or an insult to your immune system that causes inflammation. You need something so that inflammation doesn't con just continue indefinitely or at such a high level that it would actually cause damage to your body. Uh, in the brain, something actually very similar happens. So for example, um, of course, your brain releases a lot of different neurotransmitters. You have uh, the glutamatergic cells that release the, the um, neurotransmitter glutamate that's stimulatory. On the other hand, there's another neurotransmitter, GABA, that's inhibitory. Uh, you know, dopamine, serotonin, lots of different neurotransmitters. But all of these neurotransmitters have to be very, very finely controlled. How much is released for how long? And if you can imagine your brain had no system to sort of limit excess, let's say, glutamate release, well, we would all be having seizures, right? So you need your brain needs some mechanism to act as this sort of, again, a negative feedback loop. If there's too much, uh, let's say, glutamate release, it needs something to bring it back uh, down into a level that will be healthy for your brain and not cause any issues. Um, but on the other hand, so I'm making it sound like if you don't have your endocannabinoid system, well, it just has a role in like a disease or responding to very uh, extreme things like excessive glutamate release or, or inflammation. But actually, it's involved in a lot of just day-to-day -day things as well, things like learning and, and regulating mood. Uh, so certainly for like very serious diseases, it, it, it's important, but also just day-to-day -day living. And so that would be partially the, the retrograde transmission system that's pretty unique to the cannabinoids. Can you explain how that works in the brain? Yeah, so <clears throat> basically if you think of your entire brain as a, as a network of cells, with, within, within one cell, uh, signals propagated down the cell by, by an electrical signal. But when one, when one nerve or one neuron wants to talk to or communicate with another neuron, it does this chemically. It does it by one neuron releasing a chemical, which kind of floats over to the, the neuron it's connecting with, that it's talking to, and will activate a receptor on, on this neuron. So before it was thought that this information only flowed in one direction. So you have what's called the presynaptic cell, then you have what's called the, the postsynaptic cell, and the synapse is that area where they meet. And so it used to be thought that information only flowed one way. The presynaptic cell could release a neurotransmitter, which acts on the postsynaptic cell. And that was, was that. Uh, they finally discovered, they, they basically had some experimental observations indicating that the postsynaptic cell was actually uh, talking to, you could say, the, the presynaptic cell. So the communication was going in reverse, or what we call retrograde. Um, so at first, I think it wasn't actually known that it was cannabinoids that was mediating this, but then they did eventually discover that, oh, this is what cannabinoids are doing. They're acting uh, basically in reverse from how neuro the direction that neurotransmitters normally go. And so it's like the anandamide molecule is telling the upstream, calm down, got the message. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Because if you have too much too much of that message, it's the equivalent of somebody screaming in your ear. That's not good. You want to turn them down to a normal volume. And it was interesting that the CB1 receptor that's so widespread in the brain, so that is mostly on the uh, GABA generic cells, and then it's only partially on the, the glutamate cells in the brain. So that's... 
Uh, well, that's true. I don't think that's the whole story. Um, so just to review what we had just said before, the glutamate cells are the stimulatory cells, the GABA cells are the inhibitory cells. And having the right balance of, of GABA and glutamate is very, very important for, for brain functioning. Like this is the basic, uh, especially the glutamates, the basic hardwiring of, of your brain. So it's it's very important you don't have uh, too much of this or too little of this. I mean, I'm speaking very uh, very generally here. Um, but so even though maybe there's more of the receptor actually expressed on the GABA cells, um, at least from my understanding, and it's been a little while since I read these studies, but that it's actually probably a more important role on the glutamate cells. So they did a study where, so it's actually kind of amazing this technology they have now. They, they took mice, and we have things called transgenic mice where we uh, mess with their genome and can basically inactivate genes, uh, make it so they don't have an active version of some protein. And now they can actually target this so that even specific types of cells uh, will have an inactivated protein. So in this case, they inactivated the CB1 receptor genetically, specifically just on the glutamatergic neurons, so the stimulatory neurons, you could say, and then just on the GABAergic neurons or the inhibitory neurons. And even though maybe the majority of the CB1 receptor is actually on GABA, uh, if I'm recalling this correctly, I believe that actually the much bigger impact they had was the CB1 receptor on the glutamatergic neurons. Yeah, and um, I think we both got to see uh, Mary Scano um, just talk about this at a conference here in Denver, and his big line was quantity, not quality, Yeah, these CB1 receptors. And so it's fascinating that even though that the glutamate seems to matter more, even though it's, it's present there much less. Yeah, that's, it's, I, you know, even though I'm not such an expert in the field that I don't really know uh, why exactly this this sort of inconsistency is? Why it's so much higher than in GABA cells? Uh, may, maybe he can be your next speaker to <laughs> to explain it. Um, I mean, also there's some limitations to this that these studies in mice don't. You know, human brains are of course a little bit more complex. Certain areas of our brain are much much more evolved than than theirs, and so there's only so much you can do with with mice. They can't tell you how they're how they're feeling. Uh, so I think there's still more to be discovered and more that we don't totally understand what, when we're translating from what we've observed in mice compared, compared to humans. And can you talk more about the CB1 receptor and what, and what maybe surprised you the most in all these years of study uh, about it and what makes it so special? Well, I guess to answer the second part first, what makes it, what makes it special? I think the thing that's most um, in a way unique about about the CB1 receptor is just how widely distributed throughout your brain and your body it, it really is. Um, and how many different, I guess more specifically, how many different systems in your brain, for example, different neurotransmitter systems, it, it actually regulates? Because it's regulating basically just about everything. It's found in almost every part of your brain and really a variety of different types of neurons. Um, and so I compare this to say um, dopamine receptors which are have have much much more it's really like a very specific pathway right you've heard the term like dopaminergic pathway um, it's restricted to some extent to very specific parts of your brain pathways in your brain versus the cb1 receptor just sort of cuts across all different pathways in all different parts of your brain so just the sheer number of, of processes it's involved in is is something that uh, makes it at least to some extent unique 
And so then I'd be curious about your thoughts about the CB2 receptor because it's not as well studied in some ways, but it also seems to be very tied up with the immune system, which Mm -hmm. you've done a lot of studying of. So how do you describe the CB2 receptor and what we know of its function? So generally speaking, CB2 receptor, uh, when it's on immune cells, um, generally has an immune suppressive or anti-inflammatory function. So actually, they have. It's a little bit harder to study things in humans, right? You have to do, you know, these big clinical trials. Uh, can get complicated, especially with with cannabinoids. But we have a sort of natural experiment we can do, which is to look at people with different genetics, and there's a specific uh, polymorphism, or you could say a sort of genetic uh, difference in certain people that cause their CB2 receptor to be not totally inactivated, but its activity is significantly depressed by, I think it's something like about two thirds. So you can do this sort of natural experiment by looking at people who have a, a, you could say normal CB2 receptor versus a relatively inactivated CB2 receptor, uh, which tells you a lot about what what the receptor is doing in humans. Um, And so what basically has been observed is that people that have this inactive or relatively inactive version of the CB2 receptor, their risk for an incredibly wide array of inflammatory diseases or autoimmune diseases uh, in particular is much, much higher. So I think they have at least some evidence for uh, like nine different inflammatory diseases, which is probably more, but those are just the ones they, that have been included so far. Um, I mean, if you saw this in just one disease, you could say, oh, well, okay, one study, one disease, maybe this is just you know, by chance, um, or maybe you only see a small effect. Maybe this would only increase your risk of a disease by like 10%. But actually, they saw you know, so far nine different inflammatory diseases, and your risk of having this disease isn't 10% higher. I mean, the study showed, I think, everything from twofold higher to eightfold higher if you don't have a well-functioning CB2 receptor. Uh, so this is I mean, you know, animal studies, uh, cell studies is one thing, and clearly they're in agreement. But having this sort of validation in humans showing how important the CB2 receptor is for limiting your immune response and protecting you against uh, immunological diseases is, uh, is, is pretty huge. Yeah, it, it's fascinating in, in its widespreadness. And it actually leads to more... Uh, deeper science question in terms of how science really works, because there isn't officially a CB3 receptor yet. Um, But there's a number of candidates for what might be finally officially canonized as the next CB3 receptor. So could you tell us how, a little bit about the process of how somewhat, how the group of scientists finally determines this is now going to count as a cannabinoid receptor? So there's, I'm only vaguely familiar with this, but there's like international group that is responsible for basically naming the receptor, right? Because you have to have some international agreement. You can't have like one research group or one country calling it one name, then some other group or another country's calling the receptor a totally different name. So we basically have some group that sort of standardizes uh, the receptor names and says, okay, this is what we all agree to call this receptor or whether do we do we classify this receptor as a part of this system? You know, do we do we call it a serotonin receptor, or do we make it its own class, or or what? Um, so I'm not really too familiar with the details of of how it works, or if they're actively considering to rename one of these other receptors that currently has a different name as like the cannabinoid three receptor. Um, I can tell you there's a very 
large number of receptors that they discovered when we mapped the human genome. Uh, because before that, unless we had a drug that acted at that receptor, we couldn't really tell if it was there or not. That's how we discovered these these receptors to begin with, is there was a drug that that we knew, or, or some endogenous substance that we knew acted on the receptor and had some effect, and that's how we originally discovered they're there. Uh, but when they mapped the Human Genome Project, we basically could, uh, when, we, when the Human Genome Project was completed and the genome was mapped, we could then see every single receptor that existed in our entire genome. But the problem is we didn't know what, like, half of these receptors were, were even for or what what the ligand was or what their function was and so they called these orphan receptors right we have the receptor but we don't know what their ligand is so so we we just had this huge group and so now um out of this group of orphan receptors they've shown that cannabinoids can activate i, I think now we're at five of them um, that that some cannabinoid molecule, either an endocannabinoid or in many cases an endocannabinoid plus uh, a phytocannabinoid, uh, is acting on these. So how many of these will be reclassified or renamed as cannabinoid receptors? I, I don't honestly know, but I think in the future that that's possible. It it is exciting what our what our grandkids might be calling the endocannabinoid system versus what we call it now because the endorphin system started off as one receptor now it's you know a bunch of different subtypes and there's a number of effects now that we aren't e haven't even explained yet it's it's obviously not mediated by cb1 or cb2 but something's doing it um it's really exciting it feels like in a time to be studying these things you know it, it's totally true but i think honestly right now this is i think one of the best times to be in science and almost any field, the tools we have for science uh, are just becoming so much more advanced, and we're learning things at such a faster pace every year. Uh, it's basically exponential growth or exponential learning. So it's uh, it's an exciting time for cannabinoid science, but it's really an exciting time, I think, for all of science. Yeah, I do think it's true. Um, and actually, that was going to be my next question is a, a little bit more arcane piece of new science, receptor dimerization mm -hmm. and them hooking up together. Can you talk about what that is and maybe a little bit if you know any of the history of how it came about, where it might be going? Yeah, sure. So actually, it's a little it's a little funny. I have like a little personal anecdote that I was just telling somebody the other the other night. So in my Ph.D. program, we have to well. To, in all PhD programs, there's what's called a qualifying exam. So basically you take it after the first year and you're not like really officially in the program till you pass your, your qualifying exam. And where I went to grad school for our qualifying exam, it wasn't like a, a test. We had to write basically a grant proposal. Not that we're really gonna submit it, but we had to write a, a, a grant as if we're gonna you know, apply for money to do some studies. So we had to come up with a research idea and, and propose all the studies we're gonna do. And actually what I did for this was, or what I had proposed was to study the dimerization between the CB1 receptor, cannabinoid CB1 receptor, and the mu opioid receptor. At the time, we knew there was a ton of interactions between the cannabinoid system uh, and the opioid system, but we didn't know all the mechanisms. Well, we probably still don't know all the mechanisms, but we knew a little bit less back then. And so I proposed that these two receptors were directly coming together and binding each other in the membrane, and this was changing their signaling. Um, now, at the time, we knew this was something that, that could happen, but we hadn't yet been determined whether the cannabinoid or cannabinoid receptor and an opioid receptor could do this. They'd shown it with other receptors. Um, so I 
you know, part of my qualifying exam, I actually proposed this. Hey, let's study this header. It's called heterodimerization when two different receptors come together. Um, well, I, I passed the exam, <laughs> so that's good news. So I guess somebody uh, thought that proposal was good enough. And then sure enough, about five years later, uh, another group actually did those studies and actually showed that the cannabinoid CB1 receptor directly binds in the membrane, the, the mu opioid receptor. So why why does this matter that receptors come together? Well, it's sort of like a whole paradigm shift in in how receptors function, and, and specifically how, in this case, we're talking about a class of receptor called G-protein-coupled receptors. Um, and they used to they used to think that G-protein coupled receptors acted each one acted completely as its own independent unit sitting in the membrane, interacted with things inside the cell, uh, bounds drugs or neurotransmitters on the outside of the cell, and this this stimulated the signaling on the inside of the cell. Um, they had no idea that these receptors are when they're floating around in the membrane, it's actually going to connect to a totally different receptor and basically change its whole, basically its conformation or its its shape, which changes how the receptor is, is signaling. Because um, if you think of how many receptors there are to begin with, this is already like super, super complex and how many different intracellular signaling pathways can be activated because um, there, there's, there's several, there's many, it's not just one. So now think of how much more infinitely complex it is when now every receptor can bind a bunch of other receptors and changes all of that, how how neurotransmitters or drugs bind to the receptor, which signaling pathways are being activated, and the fact that any one receptor, if depending on what cell it's in, depending on what other receptors are also there in that particular cell, this can totally change how, how it acts. So things... You know, that's science only gets more complicated. It never gets less complicated, I feel like. <laughs> There's a quote here on the wall uh, from Whitehead saying, seek simplicity and distrust it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and for these dimers, um, for instance, for the muopioid and CB1 dimer, would both ligands both uh, have to be present to pass on a signal? Or could it be just one, but the signal would be a different signal if they weren't mm. together? So actually, you know, this was uh, 15 years ago, so I, I'm forgetting now. That at one point, I knew these details really well, and now uh, it's been a while, so I'm forgetting the, the exact details. But speaking sort of more generally, since I don't remember the details of this exact uh, case, um, you can have a case where, for example, you can essentially, let's say you have receptor A and receptor B, and you have the agonist or the, the drug or neurotransmitter that activates receptor A, you can actually activate receptor B indirectly through the receptor's dimerizing, but using, uh, let's call it ligand A or drug A. So there's a lot of crosstalk and you can activate pathways, uh, signaling pathways sort of indirectly by one, I guess, it, I don't know how accurate it is, but one way to put it is the one receptor can sort of transmit the signal to the other the other receptor. But it's not always uh, in, a, in a positive way in the sense that it's activation. It can also be inhibitory. So there's a lot of different ways the, the receptors can interact and how it can change the signaling. And just to further complicate the matter, can you talk about how the terpenes come in and, and what we know about how they change the conformations of these receptors and, and their downstream signaling? Right, so terpenes are a super complicated topic because for the most part, we don't really know how they work. 
and a lot of I mean there's a lot of them so that is already a bit complicated because you have a lot to study and maybe for some we know a, a good amount and others as far as far as their actual pharmacology we know very little I mean a lot of people have done their own tests and they say okay it has this effect but in terms of its actual mechanism in a lot of cases I think we just don't know or we only know part of the story we still have a, a lot left to learn so it really depends on the individual terpene. Um, there's a lot of terpenes, but to give you one concrete example, a lot of terpenes actually work at the, the a specific GABA receptor. So GABA has two main receptors, GABA-A receptor, GABA-B receptor. And the GABA-A receptor, even if, you don't, even if you've never heard of it, you kind of know what it is because it's very important for a lot of drugs. So you've, you've felt its effects. Almost everybody in this country has felt its effects, uh, whether or not they are aware of this receptor. So the GABA-A receptor is very important for the effects of alcohol. It's very important for a class of drugs called benzodiazepines, things like Valium, and it's important for a class of drugs called barbiturates, which aren't used very much anymore. Uh, but certainly as far as alcohol and, and benzodiazepines, uh, most people are, are aware of these. They're, they're sedatives. Uh, and like I said, the GABA-A receptor is an, an inhibitory receptor, hence why these drugs are, are sedatives, right? They slow everything down. Um, so why, how does this relate to, to terpenes? Well, a number of terpenes, I know of at least six, probably more, but they just haven't been tested, that can actually bind to the GABA-A receptor. And here's the really interesting thing. We know actually exactly where they bind. So all receptors have multiple binding sites. They don't have just one single binding site. There's the main binding site. In this case, it's where GABA, the neurotransmitter GABA, binds on the main binding site. That makes sense, right? But you have these other sites and when a drug binds, a drug or any endogenous substance binds these other sites, it's going to change how uh, how GABA activates the receptor. So maybe it makes GABA signal more or less. So these are called allosteric modulators. So it's either a negative allosteric modulator. We can say a simple way to say it is it turns down the volume on the receptor or a positive allosteric modulator, something that turns up the volume on the receptor or to say it another way, makes GABA signal more. And so obviously more GABA signaling causes more inhibition, causes more sedation of the person. And these terpenes, getting back to the terpenes, bind to a specific site that we know turns up the volume of the GABA receptor. So it causes GABA to signal more strongly, causes more sedation. Now, this exact binding site is already very well known and very well studied because it's actually the exact same site that benzodiazepines bind to, which work this through this exact mechanism of turning up the volume of the GABA receptor. So you could say these terpenes uh, essentially act as, as, as benzos, at least as far as their mechanism. Now, that being said, that's one mechanism that we know of. Uh, there can very well be other mechanisms as well. Um, I mean, obviously, most terpenes, although they're reported to have, or these specific terpenes are, are generally reported to have sedative effects, so that matches the, the pharmacology, what we've, what we've actually observed in people. Um, even though these terpenes um, are known to bind this site, clearly they're not as potent as a benzodiazepine, right? I mean, nobody is going to ingest a, a small amount of terpene and, like, be completely out of it the way they are to the extent they are with with Valium. So I suspect they're probably much weaker binders at these sites. It's not quite as potent as, as Valium. It's not, in a, I mean, you might go to sleep, but it's not going to literally knock you out. 
Um, you could probably stay awake if if you wanted, unlike if you took a high dose of benzos, you'd be out. So there could be other mechanisms. There's still a lot we don't we don't know, but this is at least one concrete example where we know one thing it's doing in the brain. Yeah, that's a great description of them. You know, this ability of terpene to be like the uh, the modulator, almost like the smell of wine that can just change things, even though it's the actual ethanol doing the the bulk of the work. Mm -hmm. um, and it speaks to the question I wanted to ask next about the drug interactions that happen with cannabis that work through all of these systems. And I know there there's a good number of them. Which ones are most maybe concerned to you um, as cannabis gets more and more widespread? Which mm -hmm. ones do you like to warn people about with the medications they're taking? So first, a, a wider point. A drug interaction can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. So you have... Uh, some good drug, what I'd call good drug interactions, basically where you're trying to achieve some uh, synergistic action between two drugs for, for a therapeutic effect. Um, and maybe I'll briefly touch on that in a moment, but since you asked specifically about the bad effects, um, probably the the one, probably, well, probably the most common one that most people would be concerned about would be excessive sedation. So this is when, because cannabis, I mean, generally speaking, it's sedating. Um, and combine that with something like alcohol or with opiates, or like I mentioned before, with benzodiazepines, this can cause excessive sedation. Even, even though the dose of either one of those might be lower on its own, when you combine them, uh, this can potentially cause uh, synergistic sedation, which obviously if somebody's like driving a car, operating heavy machinery, you don't want that. Uh, or it just might be too excessively sedating for them to uh, to function very well. So from uh, from the point of view of just what's the most common interaction you probably see that might have some negative effects, I think I think that would be it. Then there's another type of drug interaction that's called a, a pharmacokinetic drug interaction. So this is really when one drug changes the levels of another drug. Um, and there are some examples where this can happen with, with cannabis. Obviously, obviously what you're, you want to be concerned about is if there's another drug and maybe you're using it at a safe dose, it doesn't cause any side effects um, at that dose. But now if you add on another drug, which makes its levels go up four times, well, now you're at much higher drug, much higher levels of that drug in your body. It's as if you took a four times higher dose, and maybe now you're in a range where you're going to have a lot of side effects. Uh, so this is why we're generally concerned about these pharmacokinetic drug interactions. And so that was the last area that I wanted to ask you about, because some of the best uh, writing that I've seen from you is about the genetic background of how people's individual genes affect how uh, drugs get processed by them, specifically cannabis. And so, so if you could talk about how your personal genetics can change your reaction to cannabis with drug interactions and then to its its effects in general. Right. So, yeah, I think this is a really uh, fascinating field. It's called pharmacogenetics. So how do your genetics change how you respond to drugs? And the classic example of this with, with cannabis, there's actually a lot of examples. I should actually say there's probably um, a good 50 studies, pharmacogenetic studies, looking at either um, polymorphisms or genetic differences between people that affects how they respond to ca cannabinoids, or these are polymorphisms that affect some gene in their endocannabinoid system that can change, for example, their, their risk for disease. So while this field is still pretty early, we, we know a good good amount. I mean, let's say it's been, this idea has been well validated as a concept. Even though we still have a lot to learn, we know enough to know it's important. 
And so the most classic example of this uh, for how people can respond to cannabinoids differently, and specifically in this case THC, is an enzyme called CYP2C9. It's an enzyme that metabolizes THC. And basically, as you can imagine, if you have more of, of this enzyme or a more active version of this enzyme, you're going to metabolize THC faster. And if you have less of it, you're going to metabolize THC slower. So this is essentially changes how much THC you would need to consume to have a specific effect. And it's one of the reasons, def definitely not the only reason, but one of the reasons why different people need such different doses to basically be at the, the same level and have the same effect. And so this was now probably around a decade ago, uh, they did a pharmacogenetic study where they brought people into the lab, dosed them with uh, 10 milligrams of T, I think it was 10 milligrams of THC uh, orally. And they also looked at their genetics and said, do you have a sort of, let's call it the normal version of, of this enzyme called CYP2C9? Or do you have this other version, which its activity is reduced by, by about two thirds, uh, like the CB2 receptor, I guess two thirds must, must be the, the magic number. Um, so, so basically they saw that in these people that had a very inactive version of the CYP2C9 enzyme, they had much higher levels of THC and those levels, or another way to put it, they actually had those levels uh, maintained higher for longer. So it actually had a, a, a longer duration of effect, not only a higher peak effect, but a longer duration of effect. So this, again, it's one explanation of why one person can take one dose and like they don't feel anything. Another person takes the, the same dose and they, they feel a lot. Yeah, it, it just be complications on complications. And the, the density of CB1 receptors mm -hmm. are different in different areas of people's brains. And that can, is partially a genetic thing as well. Um, yeah, it's fascinating how much more complicated things get. Um, and this can also affect drug tests as well and how you might perform on a drug test for these. Is that correct? Yeah, so that's it's kind of a, a funny case that this... So when, you know, most drug tests are, are urine drug tests and they're not measuring THC itself, they're measuring a, a metabolite. Um, it's actually a, a you could say like a metabolite of a metabolite of a metabolite of THC. So, so THC has to go through this whole metabolic pathway being converted from one thing to another before it finally becomes this final metabolite, which is the one excreted into the urine. And each one of the, in this pathway, each step is catalyzed by a specific enzyme. And the first two steps in this pathway are catalyzed by this CYP2C9 enzyme. So of course, if you have a less active version of this enzyme, THC will not go down this pathway as much. So th there's, a, there's multiple pathways, multiple enzymes uh, that THC can go down. And so they actually uh, showed that if you have this less active version of, of CYP2C9 in, in this study, they showed that uh, basically the, this metabolite will be, levels of this metabolite will be lowered. Or at least they looked at the an earlier metabolite, but it's on that same pathway. So we can assume it's going to be a, a proportional amount uh, of the metabolite form that goes in, into the urine. So yeah, we know that if you have this particular uh, less active CYP2C9 enzyme, you're not going to produce very much of the metabolite that goes into the urine, and you would probably be more likely to, to pass a drug test. Um, and so I get, we'll end with the, the million dollar question. With all of these open questions, if we had a giant grant for you for writing your, your next proposal for your qualifying exam and we could fund <laughs> your research, um, what open question would you most want to be working on? 
but this isn't theoretical. You're really going to fund me, right? <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is a possibility. Um, <laughs> so this, this is why I didn't go into academia. So I don't always have to be begging uh, people to fund my, my research. <laughs> not, that, not that academia is not important. And I definitely respect the people that, that do spend a, a good portion of their day just writing grants and trying to get money. But, uh, but it wasn't for me. Um, so... Oh, wow, there's so many. This is actually a really hard question to answer because there are a lot of open questions and there's so many different conditions where we have either anecdotal evidence that cannabinoids might help in a certain condition or we have like a very early preliminary study indi indicating that it, it might have some activity in that condition, but it's not really confirmed yet. Um, so there's there's so many different just medical conditions I could pick and say, yeah, let's, let's study that. Um, but I think I'd, I'd have to say something medical first, cause you know, that's my field. I'm involved in clinical trials, but if it was something that was more, let's, let's say more for fun. Um, I think I would really like to do some, some, uh, human pharmacology studies on all these, on all these terpenes, uh, to better understand this, this entourage effect, which we have a ton of anecdotal data for, but nobody's really like deconstructed it and done, you know, okay, start just with, uh, cannabinoids, uh, whatever specific cannabinoid. Okay. Then do the cannabinoid plus each individual terpene uh, at a variety of doses. One of the one of the problems with these studies is, uh, or drug studies in general, is often it's just studied at one dose. But really, you need to know the whole range of, of doses to get the dose response. Um, then add on a second terpene and do this in a very like comprehensive way, so that we can really start to validate out of all these things, all these effects people claim of of terpenes, really have some a some scientific validation but also see you know where do we actually see a, a synergy because people throw the term synergy out or synergistic effects out with like everything but how many of the how much of this is is really truly synergistic and how much for example is sort of just additive um, i mean let's say thc again i'm speaking generally let's see say thc has a certain effect and uh it gives you a two out of 10 for that effect. And you give the terpene on itself and it gives a two out of 10 in, on that effect and you combine it and you measure four out of 10. Okay, that's that's additive. Uh, but let's say you combine the two and you get like nine out of 10. That's that's synergy. Uh, so I really would think it would be very cool to to study this very comprehensively and sort of deconstruct it and, and have a better understanding of it. And then the follow-up studies, of course, would be looking at the ac actual mechanisms, what receptors are involved, but at least to start, just have like really concrete validation of all these things that people are saying anecdotally. Well, Dr. Tagan, that is exactly what we would probably want to be studying. <laughs> all right. Talk I'll, more. I'll wait for the check in the mail. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming in, and thank you for such clear um, explanations of this of the complicated system. Well, thank you very much for having me. All right, we look forward to hopefully we'll talk again more as more research comes out and we can uh, get more updates. Absolutely. All right, thanks. Greener Grass is a Bluebird Botanicals podcast. Their CBD oil supports a healthy body and a strong endocannabinoid system. They've got friendly customer service who can answer any of your questions, and the number is right there at the top of their webpage. But, per the FDA, they won't be able to make any medical claims for these nutritional supplements. That's also the reason you'll hear little about CBD on this show. 
There's no need for us to add more evidence about CBD when a simple Google search will give you more than you can read in a month of Sundays. So this show covers the cannabis world and more with editorial freedom from Bluebird Botanicals. Thanks for joining the Greener Grass Podcast. As always, our audio alchemist is Matt Payne. The Gypsy Jazz theme music comes from Brett Van Donsel. Our beautiful bird sounds are courtesy of Lang Elliott. And I'm your host, Lex Pelger, wishing you a bright green day. <laughs>